This is the part where I tell you something that's sort of interesting and a little mysterious. And then there's the part where I change the tone of my voice and give the signature intro so you know you're in the right place. Hey, it's Seth, and this is Akimbo. We'll be back in a second with two practical experiments that you can use for when you're talking, engaging with others. But first, here's a message from our sponsor. Creative isn't who you are. It's what you do. Along the way, creativity has gotten a mystical rap, as if it's some sort of gift. It's not. It's a choice. It's a skill. If you have a job where you get to decide what you do, you are a creative, a working creative, and you can get better at it. I'm thrilled to say that the Creatives Workshop is back, the most active of all the Akimbo workshops. It's about people who want to level up and make a difference with their creative work. I hope you'll check it out. Visit akimbo.com go for all the upcoming workshops. Go make a ruckus. Two short riffs for you today. The first one's about metacognition, thinking about thinking, but in this case, meta-dialogue, talking about talking. Often, we get ourselves into a tizzy or a rut or a cycle when we're engaging with someone else because we're acting things out without realizing that we're doing it. So a simple example is the pattern you might fall into when you're dealing with thoughtless customer service. First, you establish that you are right. Then, when the person refuses to help you, you change your tone of voice. Then, when that isn't working, you start to demand things by changing your tone of voice again, making threats, asserting your importance, and basically getting yourself all worked up. Perhaps that performance gets you what you want in the end, but now you're exhausted. So the simple hack, which is fascinating to try, is to announce what you're going to do just before you do it. And so, person on the phone, this is the part where I tell you that I know the founder of the company and make it really clear to you that if we don't move forward, I'm going to have to make some threats. And then you go ahead and do that, bit by bit, announcing the meta that's going on. It works in relationship. It works at work. So you go to see your boss for your annual review, and your boss says, oh, this is the part where I start the meeting by explaining to you how much I don't like annual reviews, et cetera, et cetera. You get the idea. The point of this meta dialogue is that it helps puncture our feeling of self-importance and lets us realize that we are actors in some sort of performance. And maybe if you're not willing to say the thing that you're about to do, you might not want to do the thing you're going to do. It just saves us all a lot of time. And the second part is many people have talked to me about the fact that when they feel nervous giving a talk, making a podcast, addressing someone, they find themselves inserting extra words, perhaps um, um, or, uh, or maybe even like, or you know. And we do this for a whole bunch of reasons. And it turns out that there are, for most people, a set of steps that you can follow to make them go away. 
Before I share this with you, just one aside. Neurologically, some people aren't able to overcome things like stuttering, like placeholder words. And there is nothing in this advice that is designed to make you feel inadequate at all. Mostly I'm here for people who have developed a verbal tick over time and know that they would benefit from having it go away. So your mileage may vary, but thanks for checking out this idea. Why would you want to make them go away in the first place? Well, the reason is that we judge people. We judge people by their appearance, by their haircut, by their clothes, and yes, by the way they type or the way they talk. Different people get judged in different ways. Maybe you're judged based on your grammar. Maybe you're judged based on your spelling. Maybe you're judged because there are so many placeholder sounds and words that we have trouble focusing on the words you're bringing us. Yesterday, I was judging someone because they were talking way too fast for me to understand, and I basically just drifted away because it wasn't worth my effort. And it's also possible to judge someone because they're a close talker or a loud talker. I'm not saying these judgments are correct or valid or useful, but they are true because we are wired to make quick decisions about how we're going to trust someone and how we're going to allocate our attention. And the way we come across to someone else increases the chances we're going to be judged in a way we're not happy with. So how to get rid of these placeholders? First, I will say this. If you're on the radio or if you're in a conversation with someone, it is tempting to try to hold the floor, to insert sounds, to let the other person know that you're not done with the microphone yet. But there's an irony here, which is that in many cultures, most that I'm aware of, being thoughtful, inserting pauses, makes you seem smarter, makes your work seem more intentional. And in most situations, someone's not going to steal the mic from you simply because you paused. Now, there's no question in my mind that caste is involved here, that misogyny is involved here, that women or people from parts of society that have traditionally been unfairly judged are more likely to have the microphone snatched away. But I will reiterate, I don't think the microphone gets snatched away simply because you are talking more slowly or pausing to think about your words. I think it gets snatched away because the other person is trying to demonstrate power or their perception of power, and they're not caring one bit about whether you're pausing or not. So if we can acknowledge for a second that pausing isn't fatal, that pausing doesn't end your turn at the microphone, now you can see the multi-step process. The first step is this. The verbal tick you have cannot just be willed away. If it could, you probably would have already. Instead, we replace it. First, you can replace it with a different word. So every time you feel like saying like or you know, just say um or vice versa. First, train yourself to be able to substitute a different placeholder word or sound. And then second, talk as slow as you need to to replace that placeholder with a pause. That's it. Just replace um with this isn't easy, but in two hours, you'll be able to do it. So now what you are able to do is speak 
clearly, but very slowly, that you are finding a way to let your brain catch up to your tongue, that you have found a way to substitute that for the um, the like, the you know. At this point, now all we need to do is train. Now all we need to do is slightly shorten those pauses if we want to, or just live with them. Because the fact is, you're delivering just as many words per minute as you used to, but the pauses are actually showing up in a way that makes it seem like you are considering your words in a way that many people in our society view positively. So those are my two hacks. The first one, metacognition, meta-dialogue, talk about what you're about to talk about. And then the second one is training yourself over the course of just a few hours to be able to describe what you need to say without verbal placeholders. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. We'll be back in a second with two and a half questions from around the world. But first, here's a message from our sponsor. When is it time to level up? When is it time to learn a new way to see the world, to connect with others, to lead, to engage in possibility? Akimbo is a B Corp, an independently owned and operated institution designed around learning, not education, not certificates, not grades, but learning together. It works if you do the work. I hope you'll check out what the people at Akimbo are up to. Visit akimbo.com go to find out about their new upcoming workshops and how it all works. Thanks. Hey, Seth. It's Maria. Hey, Seth. My name's Kyle. Greetings, Seth. This is Stephen out in Madison, Wisconsin. Hi, Seth. Alicia from Charleston here. Hi, Seth. This is Anupam. Hi, this is Caitlin. Hi, Seth. Warm greetings from Curacao. Hey, Seth. My name is Nick Ryan from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Hey, Seth. This is Rex. Hey, Seth. Hi, this is Vasilis from Greece. Hi, this is Roberta Perry. My question is... And that completes my question. As you know, I do love to hear from you. From Bangkok to Botswana, if you've got a question about this or any previous episode, I hope you'll visit akimbo.link, that's A-K-I-M-B-O dot L-I-N-K, and click the appropriate button. We'll hear from Matt first. Hi, Seth. It's Matt in Bangkok, and I have a question about a recent blog post you wrote called The End of the Office um, and how remote work is already the future. Um, So my question has to do with the likelihood of employers adding clauses to contracts in the event of future or even continued pandemic uh, disruption. I guess um, the situation, one being where people are forced out of the office, or in my case, as an educator, out of the four walls of a classroom, Teachers, um, parents, and students, they sometimes don't equate the in-person experience to be, actually, they find it to be more valuable than the virtual learning. And in effect, in the private school sector, uh, often they're paying for the antiquated brick-and-mortar system, uh, one that allows for the social, but also athletics, arts, and music programs. So I feel like it's understandable the gripe of parents when they want a reduction in tuition, especially when the bulk of a school's operating costs or teacher salaries. So it makes sense that there would be a, a clause where teachers might make, make less money. Um, but at the same time, some teachers are actually working longer days and they're working harder 
but like everything that it's not a rule and it's not true across the board, for example, some teachers or specifically auxiliary staff, they might not even be able to do their job. So in effect, they're getting paid to do little or in some cases, nothing. Uh, for example, an athletic trainer uh, can't do their work. Or in some schools, there are activities directors, there are athletic directors, there's community and service liaisons. And so they're all in a situation where um, they just they can't do what they need to do. Uh, so my question is, what's your thinking around adding clauses to contracts? And how do you think this would be received? Um, you know, signing your name in agreement to being financially at the whim of an expanding list of force majeure or events that are out of out of control of the employee. So thanks so much. Always, always, always appreciate your insight and uh, look forward to hearing your response. Thanks, Matt. There are two parts to your question. I'll answer the second part first. Employees are employees for a reason. The deal is pretty straightforward. You give up the upside and you also give up the downside. You work at the Avis rent-a-car counter and you get paid the same amount whether it's busy or not busy. It's not your job to get Avis customers. It's your job to make sure the people who show up get a car. When it's busy, you have to work harder but don't get paid extra. And when it's really slow, you don't have to work that hard and you don't get paid less. That's why people sign up for the deal. Now, we've seen companies like Uber try to turn actual labor, people who are looking for a job, into something more like contractors. The bait and switch being, well, you go ahead and take the risk and you get your own car, but if you're really busy and there's surge pricing, you'll make more money, and when it's not so good, you'll make less. Well, that's a great deal for Uber because they've made sure that they're mostly protected against the downside because they don't have to pay the drivers, if there are too many of them, and they keep plenty on the upside. But now you're talking about what happens when that is put to people who are used to having a job. And being a freelancer is different than being an employee. So I think there's going to be a significant amount of pushback as people who are used to being treated as professionals with salaries are asked to take on a whole range of different risks. Somebody in my shoes is in a different place. If the book sells a lot, I get paid more. If the book doesn't sell, I get paid less. If a speech is canceled because of a worldwide pandemic, I don't get paid, but I also don't have to fly across the world. So it's a different offer. But the first part of your question is a lot more interesting to me in the sense that it talks about the revolutions that are all around us. You are absolutely correct that many parents, particularly for expensive private schools, are saying, wait, 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 you charged me all of this money. And then when we were on lockdown, you gave far less than you said you were going to give that fancy athletic center, all of that stuff on campus, not available anymore, but you didn't charge us less. And back and forth we go on campus, off campus, it's not the same thing. Am I here to buy? the experience, or am I here to buy the certification and the diploma? Well, what revolutions do is they destroy the perfect before they enable the impossible. And in this case, I think it's quite likely we're going to see totally different kinds of institutions arise. In the case of learning, institutions where 
the student gets way more in a cohort in the way of personal attention in terms of development, and they don't get uh, the campus, the buildings, the pool, and the rest of it. It's a little bit like what happened when we switched from stamps to email. Email costs less but delivers far more in certain ways, but if you want to send a letter to your we- an invitation to your wedding or whatever, please go ahead, and that costs a different amount of money. So in this case, I think schools are going to be wrestling a lot with the difference between price and value, the difference between what you get and what they say you're going to get, between what it costs and what's delivered. And people who choose to lead in that space will be able to start institutions on their own or in small groups that they never could have if they had to buy a building. On the other hand, those who don't want to will end up working at some level probably as contractors, more like Uber, for someone who does figure out how to assemble parents, their kids, and people who are ready to go on a journey. So the world keeps changing upside down and right side up, and there's a lot of dislocation, but that's what revolutions do. Hi, Seth. Um, This is Mufudzi from Botswana. Thank you for your podcast and your books. You have really um, impacted me all the way across the world. I have a question. Um, I just listened to you a lot last episode on the miser, and you were just talking about the um, importance of sharing your ideas and showing the work that you're doing. Um, I know that you, you write a blog every day and you share your thoughts and your ideas with us every single day. Have you ever felt um, like the quality of your idea um, would be better if you blogged less frequently? Um, and if not, how have you kind of mitigated that um, in your writing process? The other thing I wanted to ask was when it comes to brevity um, of ideas or brevity of sharing, particularly when it comes to how you write in your book, The Practice, there's a lot of um, chapters and they're quite brief. And I just wanted to know how you structured them um, in such a way. Was it affected by um, your thought process that you're okay with a brief idea or um, is this something that you've always kind of written in that way? Um, do you prefer to write in, in a brief way? Um, thanks for all you do. Thank you so much. Cheers. Thank you for these questions, Mufidzi. Let me um, try to answer them. I've heard the first one off and on over the years. And basically what I say to people is, which of my 20 books would you wish I hadn't written? Which blog posts should I skip? Because in my experience, a day when I am able to write first drafts of five blog posts, I am more likely to do better work than on a day when I just write one. I don't feel like time is my constraint. And so my daily habit, it works for me. And if someone doesn't want to read all of my posts, I totally get it. I don't think most people have. But there's this sort of myth that creative people run out of juice if they do too much. But I don't see this with playwrights. I don't see this with painters. I don't see this with writers. I don't see this with musicians. The fact is 
that what we are trying to do here is develop an instinct for turning on lights, for generosity, for leaning into the unknown. And I'm not sure that doing it less increases the quality of the output. Your mileage may vary. And the second half of your question, quite simply, is this. My ideas aren't brief just the way I write about them is. Because in my experience, the way people learn is not by taking notes by what someone wrote or what they heard. They learn by filling in the... Oh, yeah, you see, you just did that. Filling in the is the way we become enrolled in the journey and when the neurons knit together on their own. So that's why my work is brief. It takes extra time to make it short. If I'm in a hurry, it's longer. But if you can figure out how to leave a blank where there needs to be a, then people will become engaged, do the work on their own, and that's where real learning happens. Thanks again for listening. We'll see you all next time. I just don't think it's possible or probable in, in today's world to distinguish yourself as an educational institution or as a success seeker at the level of, of information gathering or information distribution. I mean, this is the information age and you can get a great book, a great essay, a great idea anywhere, you know, and none of us can do that better than the internet, right? Um, there is no great thought leader who can outthink the internet. Like we have data. What all MBA gets right is it puts you in a context where you're part of a community that says, yeah, 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 that's good. You got access to ideas, you got access to information, that's awesome, but when are you gonna show up? When are you gonna face that blank page? When are you gonna face the possibilities within you? When are you gonna face those fears? I'm not gonna let you hide. You gotta show up. And that's the hardest part. And it sounds simple, it sounds very commonsensical, but it's the number one reason why we don't write that book. It's the number one reason why we don't ask that question. It's not because we don't know or we don't have the information. We don't have an environment and we don't have a support network that makes it feel like showing up is possible for me. Not just possible for the success stories I see out there, but I can show up. Consider the Alt-MBA. More than 3,000 alumni in 74 countries around the world. Find out more at altmba.com.